question was basically, what's your, what are your salary expectations? You know, and uh, and I didn't, I hadn't really talked to this um, about this with my friend, and I looked over to her and I saw her like her hand was below the desk, and she was kind of like indicating like up, up, and uh, and so I just like said like a number that seemed crazy, so I said twenty five hundred dollars a week. Um, and he kind of blinked at me and I was like, oh shit, I, I overdid it. And he's like, well, we don't really pay anyone here below 27. So you'll start at that. And, uh, and, <laughs> and so, and so I felt like an idiot. Um, but I was also like a really happy idiot because I was like, this is way more than I've ever made in my life. Um, and it was such an easy gig. Uh, I mean, actually, it was tough for the first two weeks. I had no idea how to edit. And I, I would have like a story producer sitting in the room with me and they'd be telling me how to press the buttons on the Avid to actually make cuts and to do things. So I didn't know how to do it. Well, were they uh, suspicious that you like didn't know what you were doing by chance? Uh, I don't think they were suspicious. I think they blatantly understood that I did not know what I was doing. <laughs> How do you follow your curiosity when it leads you off the beaten path? This is Love Your Work, and I'm David Cadavy. I'm here to help you find the clues that will lead you to your calling. Several years ago, I decided to treat myself to a mini life in Buenos Aires. I figured I'd take some Spanish lessons and some tango lessons, and I'd work on my upcoming South by Southwest talk. And that's when I met our guest today, Daniel J. Wilson. He was working on a screenplay at the time. I'd soon learned that he was also an accomplished artist with his work covered in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the London Times, and displayed all over the world, including the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Daniel also has worked in film. His IMDb page includes editing credits for a number of documentaries and TV series, co-producer credits for PBS's Frontline series, credits as an actor. He's also a competitive cycler, a former New York City yellow cab driver, and he's currently a PhD candidate in neuroscience. And if all that weren't enough, Daniel has a new app. It's called Minutia. It's a bit of an anti-social network. When Instagram encourages you to scroll through lots of photos and make your life look amazing, this app is dedicated to capturing the mundane, everyday details of life. I hear lots of people lament their varied interests, and they're usually afraid to follow their curiosity because they're afraid of what they'll leave behind. And I've experienced this a lot myself. As I made the switch to designing and advertising and architecture, to designing for startups, to founding my own startup, to writing books and starting this podcast, you always have to wonder if you're killing your career when you switch paths. Here's just a few things you're going to learn from this conversation. Daniel's app, Minutia, is delightfully impractical. It won't get acquired, and it won't go public. So how do you get funding to build an app that's not a business? And why did Daniel go through all the work to get his New York City yellow cab license? He actually ended up working as a cab driver as part of one of his art projects. Daniel's always switching from one field to another and planning adventures in his life. Hear how he thinks about learning how to know the unknown. Now, when you're following your curiosity, you need to be versatile. Pistol Lake makes the most versatile shirts that I've ever worn. I picked one up back when they did their Kickstarter, and I love it so much I invited them to sponsor the show. They spent two years just engineering the yarn for this shirt. It's made from a soft, stretchable, wrinkle-free, and stink-free blend of recycled bottles and eucalyptus tree pulp. And they're entirely made in the USA. 
Go to pistollake.com slash loveyourwork now and pick up their minimalist shirt. They're giving Love Your Work listeners 10% off with the promo code loveyourwork. Wear it for 100 days. If you don't love it, they'll refund it. No questions asked. They'll even cover return shipping. That's pistollake.com slash loveyourwork. Use the code loveyourwork. And I told you a couple of weeks ago that we hit 400,000 downloads. We're trying to hit 500,000 by November 1st, but we need to grow to do that. And an interesting stat I came across, our podcast host, Libsyn, says the Overcast podcast app accounts for 1.5%, 1.5% of all downloads. Now remember, 30%, somewhere around 30% of Love Your Work listeners listen on Overcast. Lots and lots of early adopters amongst you. You're all just too cool. And this is why I ask that you please subscribe on the Apple ecosystem, even if that's not where you listen. That's how they rank shows. and That's how they rank search by number of subscribers. If you're interested in learning about that, I described the details back in episode 85 with David Allen. So if you can, subscribe on the Apple Podcasts app, on iTunes, on your Apple TV, on any Apple device you can. That will help us hit half a million downloads faster. That will help grow the show. That will help me keep making this show for you. I appreciate your listening so much. I feel so fortunate for getting this far, but we need more growth to make this show sustainable. Another way you can help the show continue is to join Love Your Work Elite. And there are several membership levels. You can get episodes early. You can get ad-free interviews. You can get a masterclass with Noah Kagan or live office hours with me. Go to lywelite.com to learn more. And thank you to our newest member, Ralphie. Go to lywelite.com to join Ralphie and the rest of the Love Your Work Elite crew. Now, Daniel J. Wilson. came here with Daniel J. Wilson. And Daniel, you have this cool new app, Minutia. Um, I wonder if you could describe it to our listeners and talk about why you made it. Sure. So Minutia is an app um, available just for iOS at the moment, but it's um, we've called it a bunch of different things. We've called it an anti-social media app. Um, it basically requires the participant to take one photo per day at a random time, but never at the same time over the course of 1,440 days, which is a number of minutes and 24 hours. Uh, At the end of that time, you will have taken one photo for every minute of the day. Um, The idea kind of being that normally... um, and kind of why we de- we dubbed it the anti-social media app is that with social media in general, this isn't a new idea, but um, you kind of present a curated version of yourself. Um, you select highlights, you select interesting things, funny things, and you present them um, as representative of your life when in fact your life is probably uh, quite a bit more mundane than your feed would have um, people believe. So that's what we wanted to do is to kind of capture those smaller moments, the everyday moments that otherwise just kind of pass by um, unremarked. Yeah, so um, you're kind of flipping, it's like the opposite of what something like an Instagram might be where you're, you're, you're framing the photo perfectly, there's a filter and everything, and then you get 
what what you said that a lot of people are aware of is that they, when they're scrolling through their feed, it kind of like makes them feel worse about themselves because they're they're just seeing all their friends uh, traveling all over the place. They're seeing their romantic relationships and things like that. And then so with minutia, you you basically get a notification at some random time during the day, and then you just have like a few minutes or a few seconds to frame your photo and take it. Is that correct? Yeah, just a few seconds. So, so the way the alerts work is, um, at a, at a, so at a random time, you'll get an alert. The alert goes off, uh, on your phone. Um, and when you get that, you have one minute to respond to it because otherwise you're not going to be taking the photo for the minute that you've been, uh, alerted for. So you, then you just miss it. If you miss it, you miss it. It happens sometimes. You might be swimming. You might be sleeping. You get a black square. But if you answer the alert, it opens the app immediately. It brings you to a camera, uh, a camera where the um, the selfie camera has been deactivated. So you can't take a photo of yourself unless you turn the phone around, of course. But it's designed, you're trying to capture what's in front of you at that moment in time. And you have five seconds once you open the camera. And five seconds, um, I can attest to, is not very long. If you don't take a photo within that five seconds, when the five seconds expires, it automatically takes a photo. So that's that's kind of the way of enforcing uh, this concept of not giving you time to frame a photo. So then it kind of becomes automatic. You know, when you first get it, you, I, I've been guilty of this myself. It's kind of like, oh, this is boring. It's my computer screen again. I should take a picture of something. And by the time you're done thinking that, it's gone off and taken a picture of your computer screen anyway. And so... After, you know, a couple of weeks of this, you just automatically open it up, point it at what you're looking at, take a photo. And then when you take that photo, everyone in the world is actually taking a photo at the same time. So everyone who has this app is getting an alert at the exact same moment. So if you're getting the alert, you know, uh, in New York at 6 p.m., they're getting it at 11 p.m. in London, and they're getting it at 3 p.m. in uh in LA, and I'm not sure what time that would be in Tokyo, but they're getting it at the same time. And so when you take your photo, you're matched with one random person. Uh, in the app, there are no profiles, there's no liking, there's no following. Um, so there's no way of knowing who this person is, and there's no way of having any interaction with them after this one random connection that you're going to have. But during that time, after you take a photo, you have 60 seconds, so you're limited. So you don't have this infinite scroll, which is another aspect of most social media apps, um, but you have 60 seconds to kind of have this voyeuristic peek into someone else's life. So you're automatically connected with the moment that you just took. And then you can scroll through their photos to see what else is going on in their life. And you kind of, I, I, I liken it to the experience. Um, I don't know if you've ever gone to those uh, flea markets. Like I've been to some flea markets in like Buenos Aires and in Europe where they have old photo albums there. And I don't know whose photo albums they are, but you kind of look through them and you kind of, build this narrative of this person's life. And it's kind of fascinating because these photos weren't really taken for you. They were just photos taken by this person documenting their life. And that's a little bit like what this is too. So you kind of have this connection with this random person. And you kind of have to imagine who they are based on these random photos that you have and, um, and kind of build this story. But after the minute expires, the app closes um, and you're never going to see their photos again. So it's very... Um, you know, it's very momentary in that sense. 
Yeah, this is an awesome concept, and it's it's so subversive. I guess to to be clear with everybody, this is more of an art project. That it's not like a it's a startup that you're going to be, you know, raising venture capital for or something. It's no, we would be, we'll be the, the world's worst startup. We've only spent money. Um, we're 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 selling the app, um, so we're getting some money, but it's basically just covering server and bandwidth costs. But it was developed. Um, I mean, the idea came up out of um, an incubator program that the New Museum in New York runs called New Inc. And they started this a few years ago and I was in it in the inaugural cohort. And uh, Martin Adolfson, who is my partner and who I've made this app with, he was also um, in the program. And we were just talking one day um, and we kind of, and, I, and, I, and we'd been invited to pitch, and I, pitch ideas for this uh biennial that they have at the new museum called Idea City. And the theme of the uh, Idea City biennial um, that year in 2015, I guess it was, um, was uh, Hidden City. So it's kind of like what, you know, what, what is in a city that you don't notice? And we took like a bit, uh, you know, a bit of a bigger outlook on that. And I was thinking about, you know, the, um, the kind of hegemony of big data and what you lose with big data and kind of like how outliers and unusual things are all smoothed over by the massive quantities of data when you're dealing with those types of things. And there's power in it, but there's also something kind of esoteric that gets lost. And, um, and based on that idea and talking with Martin, who's a photographer, um, uh, originally from Sweden, but has been in New York the last decade or so, we thought about, you know, how could we encourage people to, you know, build a library of these esoteric moments. And that was kind of the, the germ of the idea that later became Minutia. And, you know, we all, we, we kind of pitched it um, for Idea City as, as a very conceptual idea. Um, and we had a programmer who was also at New Inc. who mocked us up like a very bare bones um, kind of beta version of it. And we shared it with a few friends around the world and we just got them to use it for a week. And, we captured some images and we presented those at Idea City. And we got amazing feedback, both from the people that saw the project and from the people that participated in it. Um, we actually forgot to turn off the server after we invited our friends to participate. We, well, invited, we requested our friends to participate for a week. And a couple months later, um, the programmer realized and he shut down the server and we got contacted by some of those people that have been using it. And they're like, hey, what's going on? This was my favorite app. And we didn't even know they were still using it. So um, at that point in time, you know, we thought, hey, we should actually try and turn this into something. And if we can, that would be great. And Martin ended up getting some money from the Swedish Arts Council and he decided to put it towards us. And that was kind of when we decided we we're going to move forward. I mean, you mentioned the Swedish Arts Council and this, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I remember the term that you used, like an incubator or something. I think it'd be helpful to kind of explain how projects like this get funded for a lot of our listeners are probably more familiar with angel getting angel investment or VC investment or joining a, a, a startup incubator or something like that. How does, how does funding in these programs typically work? So the incubator um, was a new thing. So no one really understood what it, what it was. And they kind of dubbed it the first museum-led incubator. So their idea was kind of, you know, we have this interesting, you know, incubator model in uh, that's been, what's the one on the West Coast that's so famous? Uh, y Combinator, right? Yeah, Y Combinator, exactly. Yeah. So, 
So they're kind of, you know, looking at this. And as a museum, you're trying to kind of keep your pulse on what's happening in the world and, and beyond just the art world. And so they saw this model and the art world has traditionally had residencies for artists. And so I think that they were trying to consider what would it look like if you mashed up a residency and an incubator and put together not just people that are trying to start businesses, but artists who are trying to kind of start art careers and not necessarily in the traditional model where you're trying to get a gallery rep to represent you and then you sell your work through the gallery. But what if you want to independently kind of um, promote your work? And so, so the incubator was, um, you know, you applied to it. It was a competitive process and they selected a group of artists and designers and um, startup people. So we had everything from, you know, someone who was doing kind of anti-surveillance art. Um, and he had designed um, this project called CV Dazzle, where it was makeup that would keep face recognition software from actually being able to recognize you. So that was kind of, you know, the type of artist oh. that was there. And there was also this company called Print All Over Me, which was a startup that actually has become incredibly successful that did clothing where they kind of had a very interesting way where you can upload your own designs and it does like full bleed printing. And they had, you know, just an interesting business model. So that's more of a traditional, you know, startup, but then everything in between as well. And you would have a lot of interaction between all these people and they were encouraging collaboration and they had a lot of people come in to talk, you know, like the founder of Kickstarter would come in and give us a talk. And then someone from the Whitney Museum would come in and give us a talk. So we just had a very wide range of, uh, you know, John Maida came in and talked about becoming like a venture capitalist after being an artist, you know, so just a very wide range of of people and um, and With John Maida from uh, Rhode Island School of Design. RISD? Yeah, yeah, exactly. A venture capitalist now. Yes. Yeah. He's been I, I hired no by idea. a company out, out on the West Coast. And yeah, I mean, he's had a very interesting journey because he started at MIT and was like a full on artist and professor and then became, you know, the president at RISD and then moved and then got kind of like headhunted by one of the big venture capital firms. I'm not even sure which one, but um, yeah, um, he's out there now. I mean, he was two years ago when he came in to talk to us, at least. Uh, I remember when you and I were uh, hanging out on Buenos Aires together yeah. and we were at a, uh, a tango lesson once and all of a sudden during the middle of tango lesson, your phone starts buzzing and you picked it up and you started making a video of yourself. And it seems like you were doing a similar kind of experiment just informally where you were at a different minute of every day, your phone would buzz and you would... Um, record yourself is that did that idea lead to minutia um i wouldn't say it led to minutia but it's also clearly connected i mean that was a project where um i was making a durational video so this was also kind of based on the concept of a 24-hour project but the way it was working is that i was setting my alarm for one minute later each day and recording video of myself during that minute. So this was actually a video of my face and the background would change, but the idea was that the face would be framed the same. You've, you, you know, you've seen, a, there, there's been a lot of stuff on, on, you know, you can see the YouTube videos where they have someone who takes a photo of their face for multiple years and you see them growing their hair and slowly aging. And that, and that's kind of cool. But this was kind of a much more boring uh, version of that where you'd have to sit for uh, 24 hours to watch the entire piece. Um, but both with this and with Minutia, 
I think the one thing that captured my imagination was the idea that if you lived the exact same day over and over again, these would both be kind of seamless documents at the end. You know, you would be eating breakfast, you know, you'd capture the first minute of eating breakfast on the first day. And then if you started eating breakfast at the exact same time, the alarm would go, uh, our alarm would go off one minute later. You'd capture the second minute of eating breakfast the next day. And like, you know, you go into work. And um, so this kind of idea that there's both order, you know, because that did happen, you know, certain days where I was doing the exact same thing for a month in a row or something. But then kind of these like, um, rapid uh, breaks. I mean, in, in I'm just, this is off the top of my head, but I, I feel like it kind of has a bit of like, you've heard of punctuated equilibrium, which is kind of how evolution works. So I feel like that in a way, it's like the evolution of your life. You've yet to see it in a very unique way. Um, but this, the difference with this is that it's not sequential. One minute with minutia is not followed by the next minute the next day. It's totally random. So it's totally out of order as opposed to the other project. And it's obviously um, photo instead of video. Right. And at the end of the Minutia project, I, you, I think you said it was going to go for four years and then there's going to be a book produced with all these photos. Is that correct? Or not yeah, all of them, that, but... Yeah, exactly. So there's there's kind of two... There's three options actually for people to do the project. Basically, for people that sign up and get the app... Um, when you finish your four years, your it's almost four years, 1,440 days, you'll be given a digital, so you, you can't normally look at your photos during that time. You don't have access to them, but we store all the high-res versions. And then at the end, you get a high-res download of all of your images um, from that uh, cycle that you've taken part in when you complete it. And then you'll also have the option at that time to do a print print on demand book, so you can kind of create this giant uh, photo album of you know your boring moments from over over the course of those four years. And then we're also selling like a limited edition, and this is kind of you know uh, connected to the art background, the artwork background. We're selling a limited edition. Um, for $1,440, so it's just $1 a day. That's how we're pitching it. Um, and for that, you get a hand-bound book that's made by this amazing guy that we met on the Lower East Side of New York. And, the, and, he, um, and, and we'll take all your images ourselves and we'll print them and then we'll bind them in this book. And then you get this giant book. It's in two volumes. It's too thick to bind in one book. Um, but it's two volumes that are like giant encyclopedias uh, that have... Uh, have 12 hours in each of them, essentially, and all of the photos that you've captured over that time. Wow. Uh, I'd like to talk about some more of your, your art projects, like um, 9Y40. Can you tell us about that? 9Y40 um, is actually the, the license number of the taxi that I was driving in New York. So this was a project where I was kind of fascinated and it was right on the cusp, right before Uber really um, was a thing. Uh, I decided that it would be fun to get um, my driver's, uh, my taxi cab license uh, in New York and then to drive a cab. Um, it wasn't really fun, but it was really interesting, um, both the licensing process, going through that and seeing all the people that were, you know, in that world. Um, in the world that I really had no connection to. And then um, I, what I did is after I got my license, I drove for a month and I could only get the night shift because I was a new person. 
And also I could only rent, I couldn't rent a car by the day because I was new as well. So I had to rent it by the week. So I was driving seven days a week, um, night shift and night shift in New York is 5 p.m. to 5 a.m. So all the taxis and the big garages have the same shift, which is crazy because it means that there's like this like dead man zone or there has been, there's obviously Uber now, uh, right around 5 p.m., which is pretty close to when people are going home from work. Um, so I drove for a month and while I was driving, I was rec- secretly recording all of the conversations in the back seat. And I often get a- got asked after the fact, is this kind of like the taxi cab confessions? But it was definitely not like that. I wasn't really talking to the passengers. Um, what I was interested in is what they said to each other and what they said when they were talking on the phone. So that's what I was recording. And then I made an audio collage, you know, of this um, sort of like an, uh, a sonic tapestry of New York because the taxi cab really is one of the few places in New York city that everyone passes through, you know, everything else is so segmented, you know, there's the fancy restaurants, the cheap restaurants, there's the, you know, the different clubs, there's the different bars, all the different neighborhoods, but taxi cabs kind of traverse them all. And so I had all kinds of people in my cab. And then I made this kind of audio 45 minute audio piece And I presented it um, during the art fair, the Armory Art Week that they have in New York and where they have a bunch of different art fairs going on. And I shuttled people from one art fair to another for free. And while they were being shuttled from one art fair to another, they would listen to this piece in the back of the cab. So kind of they would listen to it in the location where it was originally captured. So it was just this experience uh, and it's not something that people you, uh, people can't experience it anymore, right? It's it's done. You can't like go online and listen to the recordings or anything. Yeah, I think that it only makes. I, I mean, I think that uh, it was interesting just listening to the audio, but I think that it's not the same. And I think that I want people to experience it um, correctly. I, I did take it to Washington D.C. and presented it in a taxi cab there. Um, and I'm open to doing that in the future, but it's just been, I've had, I've been busy with other things and, uh, I don't have a license in New York anymore. So it's a hassle getting a taxi. Um, so it's just, you know, there's some barriers. Like what was that experience of getting the taxi cab license? Like, were there any, like, what was your biggest surprise from that process? Um, so so it wasn't that surprising. I mean, I, I, what I enjoyed a lot was meeting all of the people that were getting their licenses for all the different reasons they were getting them. And also the teacher was a really crusty old taxi driver who was very no nonsense. Um, so I liked all of that. It was so different than anything, any, like the normal kind of milieus you'd like, okay. Sorry, backing up, but New York is a very diverse place, obviously, but you end up hanging out with a bunch of people that are essentially just like you. And so this was very different. And I liked that because I grew up somewhere that was very not New York. And in general, I like exploring places that are outside of my comfort zone. Um, This most surprising thing I would say was probably how easy it was to pass the exam after how built up it was. You had to do quite a few hours of class. um, And then you write an exam and you realize that if you can, if you are a native English speaker, you basically can fail the rest of the exam and still pass. Um, and then the other surprising thing, I guess, was that 
there's no practical part of like all this learning. You spend all this time learning about driving a cab and memorizing maps, which makes no sense really. Like the fact that you can't use GPS just blew my mind as a New York, New York taxi driver. And, uh, and then you never sit behind a taxi cab. So when I first went to get a cab, I didn't know how to work the machine really. I didn't know how to do anything. So um, that also surprised me. So there's no field trip where they kind of take you to a cab and show you how to actually, you know, rent one and get in one and, and, yeah. and do the job. There's no real practicality to it. It's more just like, uh, you know, this is a one-way street until here. And then at Houston, it changes a direction. And then it's a two-way street. And, and you know, you know, the even number streets go east in Manhattan and the odd numbers go west, except for 18th, which is bi-directional. And, you know, it's just like that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, so I, I didn't even really think about that until I went to rent a cab. And then like, as I sat in the cab and then I was like, you know, shit, I don't really know what I'm doing. I had to go back and I was like, hey, can you kind of show me how this works? And uh, so someone came out and they showed me, but yeah, I really had no idea. And did you end up listening to all of the audio from a month, 12 hours a, a day, basically? Um, did you listen to all that audio to put together this collage? How did you sort through the, the pieces that were interesting? I listened to it all. Um, to be honest, I wasn't recording for 12 hours a day. There'd be slow points and there'd be people that didn't talk. Um, so I would say there was more like, three to four hours a day, um, which still adds up. And I, I just basically kind of categorized it. So I was like, okay, this is a conversation about relationships. This is a conversation about money. This is a conversation about uh, food. This is a conversation. And I also, so I divided up into categories and also to like times of night. So there's kind of like in the collage, it kind of has a flow both through time and through topic. Um, you know, cause the conversations kind of alter as the day goes on too. There's a lot of conversations, you know, at six and seven and 8 PM about work and then about dinner. And then later on at night, you know, the conversations get a little bit more personal. And, um, so, so those were kind of, that, that was the two ways I categorized it was by time of day or night and by topic of conversation. And were there times when you were driving and you were in the cab and you heard somebody say something and you kind of like bookmarked it for yourself so that you would know to return back to that time? Or did you ever do that? Uh, mentally, yes. Um, I wish I'd had a method of actually setting some sort of marker in the audio. There may have been. I just didn't hadn't figured it out. I was using like a very like a pretty good contact microphone that was very low profile. Um but yeah, and it was hooked up to like you a, just uh, collapse, a and, uh, and then the passenger would have been very confused. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I was trying to keep it uh, discreet, so I, I didn't. Yeah, but there was definitely times when um, I'm trying to remember because this was a couple of years ago. I did, I made notes after each trip, after each day, and during that time, I would mark down like here are some conversations, but I don't think I ever marked down like it was this time of day or, or this time of night when they said this thing. And I'm sure like a ton of listeners are like are are wondering right now like how was was this legal? 
Yeah, that was actually a question um, that I was wondering too. Uh, I wasn't wondering it that much at the beginning because my idea for this also was this is going to be an art project. It will have a very small audience, so I don't really need to worry about it. But then um, the New York Times was interested in writing about it. And I was about to, while I was still driving the taxi and, and collecting the stories, I was I was going to let one of their reporters come along with me. And then um, a friend of mine who's a lawyer uh, found out about this and got really nervous about what I was doing. And then I talked to some other friends who were lawyers. And I mean, your lawyers, uh, you know, their job is to kind of make you think twice. And that's what they did. And I kind of I got cold feet. So I canceled the uh, New York Times piece. And I decided, you know, I should actually just figure out if this is actually legal. And uh, I knew that there was one party consent laws in New York, which means that only one person has to give consent to record a conversation. But because I wasn't taking part in the conversation, I didn't know how that worked. And so they actually had this amazing service in New York called the Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts. And I approached them and I told them my story and they um, connected me with a couple of pro bono lawyers in New York and they took on the case and they looked through old case law and they determined that I was in the clear because based on case law, apparently, um, if you're within obvious uh, hearing distance of a conversation, you can be considered to be part of that conversation and that's to, and that was like set to be like ten feet or something like that. So, based on those numbers and that case law, uh, I was okay as a taxi driver. I was part of the conversation, even if I wasn't taking part in it. I mean, it, it sounds like it kind of makes it an interesting piece of the art as well. Is this idea of is it if you're sitting there talking like the taxi driver doesn't hear you, which a lot of people are like that in taxis, and you know, is the, is the taxi driver a part of the conversation? Yeah. I mean, it is an interesting question and it is just like an interesting space, you know, the taxi in a way, because I don't know if it's because you're paying for it. So you feel like a sense of ownership or, or what it is, but a taxi in many ways is not that different than getting on an elevator with a stranger. And yet, as soon as you get on an elevator with a stranger, you kind of clam up. And when you get in a taxi with a stranger who's driving, people just don't care and they'll say anything and they kind of have this, you know, freedom to um, ignore the fact that there's someone sitting right there who can hear everything they say. So, I mean, in a way that's, I was taking advantage of that too. I've always loved eavesdropping. I find it so fascinating just like getting this glimpse of someone else's life. And this was a great way to do that. I mean, were there any highlights from the uh, things that you overheard? Yeah, I mean, everyone always asked me, like, what's the craziest thing that happened? You know, I think that I heard a lot of crazy stories um, from other taxi drivers, but they've been driving for decades, you know. So I'm sure the crazy things do happen in a month nothing really crazy happened to me. Like I had people, um, you know, doing, having like extreme uh, makeout sessions in the back. 
Uh, I had people passing out. I had people getting in fights and yelling at each other and like jumping out of the cab. I had people that were so drunk that they couldn't know, they didn't know what borough they were in. Um, you know, so you deal with like a lot, but in a way, um, what was maybe most interesting to me was the fact that, you know, you're kind of dealing with all these different uh, layers of New York. And in some ways they're kind of all having the same conversation. You know, everyone's just talking about work and ta- and complaining and talking about relationships and complaining about relationships. And, you know, it's a little bit, um, there was, there's always like interest in the specifics, but overall I found, I found that I was kind of interested by the fact that, you know, things were kind of the same. And there, and there was, you know, of course, like the moments when someone gives you like a $200 tip and that sort of thing as well. But I mean, that was less interesting to me than kind of the overall experience. Yeah. I guess if, I mean, if you enjoy listening to conversations, kind of just the mundanity of it, yeah. Of somebody, I don't know, telling, calling their spouse to tell them they're coming home for dinner or something like that, that can be interesting. Totally. And I, and I, and also just cause there's so many different dynamics too, you know, there's like the parents with their kids and like over the course of 20 minutes, you really get a sense of how they interact and you can see like, oh, this kid's in for a rough one. Um, or you have like, you know, a few, three businessmen going to a strip club and you can tell, oh, this is, this guy's nervous. He would never do this on his own. He's being pressured. This is the guy who's kind of like the alpha. Um, you know, this is the guy who's like really wants something he's trying to please, you know, you just like, you see all these relationship dynamics and you just kind of get to observe them. It's, um, I found it just fascinating. You know, I love kind of trying to untangle like what people are about, you know, it's, it's a little bit like, I don't know if you've heard of that study where they had people um, look at someone's room versus go out to lunch with them. Or or I forget what the exact numbers are. I'm sure you can Google this. But basically, it was something along the lines. I'm butchering the specifics, but that people felt like they knew someone better after seeing their room for one hour versus going to lunch with them like five times or something. And I think it's a little bit the same. It's like when you're observing people, you just kind of, and not directly interacting with them, like there's no pressure. You're not worried about how you're coming off and you can just really observe in a very detached way, which I thought was really fun. It's it's an idea that I think some people might fantasize for a moment. Oh, that'd be kind of neat to try being a taxi driver for a little while, but then they wouldn't ever do it. How did this come from conception to reality did you just wake up one morning and decide to do it or how did that process go yeah no there was a specific moment um and and i think that you know now it's actually easier to kind of do it because you can just become an uber driver and drive for one day that's actually possible um it was actually yeah quite a hassle becoming a yellow ta- a yellow cab driver but i i came up with the idea initially like that, it, that I really wanted to actually do it when I was in Berlin. And I got picked up by a taxi driver. Um, and they have this thing in uh, Berlin, or at least they did a, few, a number of years ago, uh, called the Kurzstrecke, which means like the short trip. And there's a flat rate for the short trip. And I just love taking the short trip because um, it was like four euros or three euros or something crazy. And so um, I was in one of these like Kurzstrecke taxis with a friend of mine and the taxi driver was this really young guy. 
And that was pretty rare. And, um, and so we started talking to him and he's, he was telling me like, I've just been doing this for a month. It's so much fun. Like he was talking about, there's a famous like, uh, kind of like sex club in Berlin called the Kit Kat club. He's like, I love going there. Like I keep picking up girls. Like, so he would like take his uh, taxi and go and like try and pick up rides from there. And, and he would often get invited into, you know, weird scenarios. And he was just like telling us all the different things he had experienced And I was like, you know what? Driving a taxi does not seem like a fun job, but driving a taxi for a month does seem like a fun job. And in a way, it's just like, there's a lot of things that are like that, right? It's the time that makes something kind of shitty or tough or difficult. Um, But if you do it for just a limited amount of time, it's really fascinating because you see something and you learn something. So at that moment, I was like, yeah, this is something I'm going to do. I'm going to drive a taxi in New York for a month. And I didn't realize at the time that, it was such an involved process to get licensed. But when I went to New York and I found out, I just, you know, I had the momentum of being excited about it to push me through. And I just, um, you know, I did it. And then, and then that was that I had my license. Um, and uh, what were you doing for work most of the time around then? Were you doing, uh, editing video editing then? Uh, so besides driving it to taxi, which I'm yeah. sure you, I'm sure that was all that was probably your only job for the month. Yes, that was my only job. I didn't go to work at five after five in the morning. Um, yeah, that was my only job at that point. But before then, um, I had just been. Uh, this was right before uh, I went to Buenos Aires. Actually, that I did like the actual collecting of the audio. Then I presented it like. Then I edited it and presented it over a year later, but. Um, I was editing, the last thing I had done before doing the taxi project was that I was in editing a video for the Discovery Channel on the Milgram uh, project because it was the 50th anniversary of the Milgram experiment that he did where he was shocking people. So that was oh, the that's last thing I Basically, uh, if, if there's an anonymity, if somebody's in another room, people will punish somebody further if, if they have anonymity. Is that kind of the gist of that experiment? Yeah, it was both kind of looking at anonymity and also the other thing was kind of uh, the power of an authority figure because you had someone in the room saying, no, go ahead, keep going. You must continue, keep going. right? You must continue, you have to continue. Um, and, and this was kind of, you know, part of it was inspired by this kind of the horror of the Second World War and how could people do the things that they did, you know, um, and this was kind of in a way showing that you know, when people are told to do something by a person in a position of authority, they'll often do it. And even if it does seem to have kind of terrible consequences. I, I remember seeing a, you know, not your documentary, but a video of that in psychology class in college. And I, if I remember right, they would, you know, they'd have an actor or something in the other room and, and, and he'd just be screaming like, oh my God, stop. And pretty much everybody would keep going. But I think there was maybe like literally like one person who just said, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not doing this to another person. And so it was very rare for somebody to actually say that they weren't doing it. Is that, am I remembering that right? Yeah, that's totally right. And we re, we kind of like reran a version of it. You're not allowed to do that exact test anymore for kind of like ethical reasons. Ethics boards, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Th- that's not going to pass any research ethics boards protocol. But um, we did a version where we didn't go up to the highest levels because the highest levels on the shock machine that they had made, like this fake shock machine, were indicating like death. Um, so 
Uh, and that's kind of like in the experiment, that's how it would go is that at a certain point, like the person in the other room would like be like screaming and like saying, you know, that they had a bad heart and things like this and that it was so painful. And then they would become silent. And often people would continue to give them increasing, like even higher shocks after they stopped, um, you know, responding. So like, what do you assume? They kind of have to assume that passed out or they're dead. Um, and, uh, and in our experiment, we couldn't go that far. Um, for ethics reasons, but basically people- Yours, just to clarify, you and, and the rest of the Discovery Channel team, is that correct? Yeah, I was not running these experiments. These were done out of like a laboratory, I think in California somewhere. Uh, and- uh, but the cameras were there and you were editing the footage afterwards. Exactly, yeah. And, 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 and so the results were kind of, you know, this was not a real scientific thing. It was kind of just like a proof of concept and to kind of like show modern day people doing it. But it was, it was similar results. But it's kind of like an interesting task in a way. I mean, that would be kind of like a weird but revealing job interview type of task that you could have people do. We're going to take a quick break. Decision fatigue is real. You know Steve Jobs wore the same thing every day. You know Mark Zuckerberg wears the same thing every day. The more you have to worry about your clothes, the less mental energy you have to worry about other things. Which is why I love my minimalist shirt from Pistol Lake. It's so versatile. The fabric is soft. It's stretchable. It's wrinkle-free and stink-free. I wear it to the gym. I just wore it on a night out to see a play. I'm going to wear it this weekend watching whales off the coast of Columbia. Pistol Lake has worked so hard on these shirts. They've spent two years just engineering their magical U-Day yarn. It's a blend of recycled bottles and eucalyptus tree pulp. And Pistol Lake makes all of their clothes right in the USA. Go to pistollake.com slash now. And pick up their minimalist shirt. They're going to give Love Your Work listeners 10% off with the promo code LOVEYOURWORK. You can wear it for 100 days. If you don't love it, they'll refund it. No questions asked. They'll even recover your return shipping. That's pistollake.com slash loveyourwork. Use the code LOVEYOURWORK. You know from my conversations with people like James Altucher and from the lessons I've learned from my former neighbor Warren Buffett, you should always be investing in yourself. There's no better way to do that than to always be learning. That's why there's Skillshare. It's an online learning community with over 16,000 classes in design, business, and more. You can learn everything from logo design to JavaScript to screenwriting. If you're a professional or freelancer looking to brand yourself or grow your business, Skillshare has the class for you. I'm taking some voice lessons because I'm always trying to keep my vocal delivery good for this podcast. I'm also taking an accounting course to get a handle on finances for my business. And I'm taking Seth Godin's course, the Modern Marketing Workshop. You and I could walk into any business school in this country, to any marketing class in this country, and that's what's being taught. That what's being taught is a framework to think about what you do when you have something you want to market. And this course is about something else. This course says, market what works. Go check out Seth's course and 16,000 others. Skillshare is giving my Love Your Work listeners one month of unlimited premium access absolutely free. Go to Skillshare.com slash LoveYourWork to redeem your free month. Um, and about this video editing thing, I mean, you've done some, obviously worked for Discovery Channel. You have co-producer credits on a couple of documentaries um, with, is it PBS's Frontline? Yeah, exactly. Um, 
So that's kind of something that you would do every once in a while on contract, um, make money doing that, and then do crazy experiments like go uh, be a t- cab driver for a month. Yeah, yeah, it facilitated. And the thing with those is that when you're working, what I realized quickly um, with filmmaking, uh, I started out like uh, in screenwriting, actually. I'd written a screenplay that won an award in LA and I went out to LA and worked with some producers out there, um, but rapidly went broke. Like the, the winnings from the screenplay competition dissipated very quickly. Um, and so I needed to get other jobs. And um, I had a friend there who was, um, she was actually Jenna Jameson's uh manager at the time when Jenna Jameson Jameson, for people who don't know is a porn star, right? Yeah. She was like one of the most famous porn stars of, I guess, maybe like the nineties. Um, I'm not sure what her like era exactly was maybe the aughts as well, the early aughts. Um, but, uh, when, um, when I was in LA, uh, she was trying to cross over, you know, into the mainstream, um, and her manager was had her like on a pilot for VH1 doing a reality show. And as part of that, she had some sway at, at the production company. And so she knew that I was broke. And as a favor to me, she told them that I was an experienced uh, reality TV editor and uh, asked them to hire me kind of like as a condition of, you know, working with Jenna. And um and so they agreed because they're a big company. They don't really, you know, it's not that big a deal for them. And I had no idea how lucrative uh, editing was um, until I went into the meeting and I was sitting and the guy was like, who was hiring me, like I was already hired. It was just like a formal formality, but I was sitting next to my friend talking to him and he was, and it was question was basically, what's your, what are your salary expectations, you know? And, uh, and I didn't, I hadn't really talked to this, um, about this with my friend and I looked over to her and I saw her, like her hand was below the desk and she was kind of like indicating like up, up. And, uh, and so I just like said like a number that seemed crazy. So I said $2,500 a week. Um, and he kind of blinked at me and I was like, oh shit, I, I overdid it. And he's like, well, we don't really pay anyone here below 27. So you'll start at that. And, uh, and, and so, and so I felt like an idiot. Um, but I was also like a really happy idiot because I was like, this is way more than I've ever made in my life. Um, and it was such an easy gig. Uh, I mean, it actually was tough for the first two weeks. I had no idea how to edit. And I would, I would have like a story producer sitting in the room with me and they'd be telling me how to press the buttons on the Avid to actually make cuts and to do things. So I didn't know how to do it. Well, were they um, suspicious that you like didn't know what you were doing by chance? Uh, I don't think they were suspicious. I think they blatantly understood that I did not know what I was doing. <laughs> but they were nice. I mean, I was lucky, right? You could have got someone who didn't like you and then they would have just kind of gotten you fired. But the person I was working with, she was really nice. And uh, and I worked really hard. Like a couple of nights I stayed in late to like l- try and learn stuff. And within two weeks, you know, you can pick it up. And so in two weeks I was decent. And she's like, yeah, I, mean, I knew you would get it. So... Um, so then I knew how to do it and then I would, yeah. You already had the film backgrounds, right? I mean, the story, the storytelling part of it is probably critical to editing. 
Yeah, I mean, I kind of did. I had done um, a one-year program in uh, film and television, but I hadn't really made anything. And then I, yeah, and then after that, I had done uh, an art and technology degree. So a master's in art and technology in Sweden. So I didn't really have, um, yeah, I didn't have the experience they thought I had. Stop. So how did you go from taking a, a, a year long program like that and not actually making anything to doing all the things that you do now, which is like you've I've, I've seen you do a lead part in a feature film. Uh, you're doing these art projects like Minutia and the uh, the cab pr- project nine Y 40. Um you, you you're a cycle racer. You uh you do so many different things. Why, why was that just your personality then when you didn't do anything during that year program, you didn't make anything? Well, that was a bit of my own fault. Um, I had applied to this program and then I disappeared. Uh, I, I just, I didn't realize how it worked, um, which I probably would have if I had read the paperwork when I got accepted um, but I, I kind of left in the summertime and went on a surfing trip, um, down in Baja, Mexico with a friend. And during that time, apparently you were supposed to indicate to the school what courses you wanted to take. And I didn't do that. And so when I showed up to school, they didn't even think I was coming and they were, they were confused as to who I was. Um, and all, and all the classes, like the uh, the cinematography class and the producing class and the directing class were all full. Um, and so the only class that, uh, the only classes that weren't full were, um, was, was one on screenwriting. So I did like, I wrote a screenplay while I was there, but I mean, it's not that I did nothing, but I didn't do much and I didn't produce like a project of my own while I was there. Writing a screenplay is, is something, I mean, you can make a whole movie out of that. Right. So, um, yeah, yeah, I guess so. I, I guess it's interesting to me that you you do so many different things, and uh, I mean, I didn't even mention that you're also now a PhD uh, neuroscience student, um, a PhD candidate, and um, I guess there's a lot. I get a lot of people kind of lamenting that they have disparate interests and that they have disparate curiosities and that they're not related and they're just sort of like don't know what to do because they feel like they should be focusing on one thing. Um, and it doesn't seem like, how do you think about that? Do you ever, when you try one of these new things, do you ever think, ah, maybe I should focus on video editing in my career there or, you know, like the competitive cycling you're doing, maybe you should just dedicate yourself to competitive cycling. Um, how do you think about that? Do you think about that? I do. Um, I mean, I think that, yeah, it's a natural thing, right? To think about how you're spending your time. Um, so first of all, there's too many things that are interesting to do. It's just, you're, you can't do them all. So that's just a fact. Um, but I think that it's a tricky thing to get focused on career. Um, and for whatever reason, I've not, um, I've not felt that need. And I think that that is a great freedom because I think that uh, I often move away from things just as I'm becoming established in them. So uh, 
you know, as I, um, I left New York at a point in time, yeah, when I'd had credits doing the frontline pieces and editing on, you know, popular national shows and stuff. I don't know if we mentioned that 9Y40 actually did end up in the New York Times. I don't know if we were yeah, clear about yeah, that. Yeah, so like- New York Times. And, and also I had, you know, uh, other artwork. I, I got like a grant from the Canada Council for the Arts for like $120,000 to do a project with a scientist at McGill. So I was getting like, things were starting to happen in these areas that I was interested in. But I realized that there's, you know, um, something that I'm more interested in. And I can either make a career in something I'm interested in or make a move to something I'm more interested in. And it wasn't that I wasn't, um, there was hesitation, but the hesitation was just to make sure that I'm really truly interested in the thing that I'm moving towards not that I was afraid of leaving behind something that I liked. Um, you know, I miss it, but it's hard to miss something too much if you like the thing that you're currently doing more than the thing that you left. And competitive cycling, like how did that start happening? That was mainly uh, a little bit of a dare and like not wanting to back down. I had a friend who... Uh, I had met when I went to grad school in Sweden and he was an avid cyclist and he told me about this transcontinental race from London to Istanbul that was going on and uh, suggested that we should do it. And so I love, you know, doing things like that. I love, you know, kind of random, difficult challenges and especially if you get to do them with another person. And so I decided to do it and I trained uh, six times before starting, um, which isn't a lot, uh, I realize now. Um, and then the first day, I think I ended, up, I ended up riding more kilometers the first day than in all six of my previous training sessions. Uh, and you only had uh, 15 days to do the race max. The guy who won was insane and did it like in seven or eight. Uh, but we were aiming to take the whole 15, but assuming that we would have to quit after like three or four and then would just take a train over. But we did it. We actually like ended up banging out 250 kilometers a day, every day. And I don't think I could have ever done it without someone else, but there over the course of those two weeks, I just realized like, I love cycling. Like it's a very nice speed in which to see the world. Running is a little bit too slow for me and driving is too fast. And you also kind of, you can smell things, which is really nice. Um, and so, and I just like the rhythm of cycling. Like it was very, you can do it for a long time. It doesn't hurt your joints. And it's like very meditative. Like those 15 days, like I had so much time just to think and sit and, you know, also just think about nothing and just be lost in the cycling. So that kind of got me, got, that got me hooked. And then the last couple of years I've been racing and, um, yeah, I just find it it's such a unique sport. I've, I've abandoned, I used to be like really into following, you know, uh, basketball and I would follow football and do fantasy football. And I just like, I don't follow any of that anymore. I just like watch bike races and race my bike and train. And I love it. And you sort of discovered that you, you kind of had a talent for it too, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things. It's a weird kind of um, feeling when you realize that you are 
that you have a natural proclivity for something and you haven't tapped it and that you've missed the best time to tap it. You know, like I'm in my later thirties now. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I started cycling and I immediately became like quite strong in comparison to the people I was cycling with. And I'm now cycling, you know, like at the top amateur level that you can and, and doing fairly well. And, um, and that's, and, and usually that takes more time than I've put in to, to get there. Uh, and yeah, so, so of course, I mean, I just have to enjoy it. Um, but I do of course have that feeling once in a while, like, oh, imagine if I discovered this when I was 21 instead of when I did. So yeah, but that's the way it goes, I guess. And I, I you know, I think that like we, we lived together for a bit in Medellin. We met in Buenos Aires. Like, I think that I picked up some, some nice habits from you just in the way that you approach doing projects like this. Um, and I don't know whether you, you are aware of the way that you go about it. Um, but do you, do you have any thoughts about when you get an idea for a project that you want to do that's kind of ambitious and it's new and you has all these unknowns to it? How do you typically tackle something like that? Because um, I find you say- kind of disciplined about it. Like you, you might be like, oh, well, I'm going to do this uh, two hours a week um, for, you know, this amount of time and that that's going to help you plan it and like being able to take the vision in your brain and actually make it into a thing. Yeah. I'd say like the process, um, I haven't thought about this that much, but I would say like the process is usually like coming up with an idea. I mean, we all come up with tons of ideas all the time, but there's those ideas that kind of like get stuck in your head. And that's, you know, that's the indication that it's an idea that maybe, um, you should pursue. And so if I have an idea that's stuck in my head for a while, um, then I just start to research it a lot. You know, like that was the same with neuroscience. Like as soon as I kind of start started thinking about becoming an academic, I did a lot of research. And, um, and I think that that's a key part because then that, that directs how you proceed afterwards, you know? So like when, with the neuroscience thing, you know, I found kind of like, I did a bunch of research and I ended up finding someone who was into the arts, but was also a neuroscientist at Princeton and kind of with that connection, um, you know, found, got advice from him on how to proceed and then kind of use that advice as a means of developing a plan and getting like a research assistant position and kind of, you know, dedicating a bit of time to that each week. Um, so I think that's a, a little bit of, um, that's a bit similar to how I approach all my projects where it's like, first there's the, like the, the tweak of an idea, then it remains. And then kind of like trying to research it as much as you can. And I think that that's also kind of similar as like finding a good person often is kind of part of the, the, yeah, that facilitates, um, developing a plan to act upon because, so many of these things, like it's, they're opaque until you have someone kind of laid out for you. And, and it's, and then once they do, then it's actually not that tricky. So I feel like there's just like this, like weird barrier you have to get over. And then once you can crest that barrier, then it's actually fairly easy just to kind of keep going. It's, it's clear what you have to do next. Whereas before, you know, it just seems like an impossible wall until you, until you scale it. 
Yeah, that's interesting. And I think that's something that a lot of people do when they have a, a, a fantasy or a vision in their head, and then they just feel overwhelmed with what they don't know about it, when in fact there can be this sort of um, research or exploration phase where you where you approach it with the knowledge that you don't know what's going on just to get a feel for it. And it sounds like the way that you do that is sometimes by finding a person who can maybe give you some insight. Yeah, I, I think that's a great way. It's not the only way, but I think that it's also something that I think you build like a certain confidence, you know, it's just like, it's problem solving in a way, right? And your problem is like, how do I get to point B from point A when I don't know what the path looks like? And so then you kind of have to, you know, dig around and find that path. And whether it's through like a person who shows it to you or whether it's through a bunch of reading or Googling or just kind of like like boots on the ground, there's going to be a path. And it's a skill kind of finding that path too. The more times you try and do something new, the better you get at kind of uh, developing your pathfinding skills. And it's not to say that it's not necessarily a long path, but as long as for certain things, but as long as you can find it, then you can at least move in that direction. So when you identified, I think this was a professor at Princeton, is that correct? Uh, Um, It was actually a postdoc. A postdoc. Okay. So when you identified this person, how did you then get them to pay attention to you? Um, To to take time out of their busy day to you know, talk to the yeah. stranger. I mean, they were, first of all, they were just like really generous with their time. But I think that the reason or part of the reason was because we had similar interests. I, I met him at an art event where a friend of mine was presenting like an experimental sound piece that he had done. And the curator was a friend of his and the curator knew this neuroscientist. So it's kind of like having these networks, you know, of people with with like kind of out-of-the-box interest. I don't think every neuroscientist is is interested in experimental sound projects. So the fact that we had this kind of uniting interest, I think that, you know, there's lots of neuroscientists probably who have interests where they don't find it easy to kind of satisfy um, them in their own field. You know, like they have lots of people to talk about to about neuroscience, but maybe no one to talk to about art. And so the fact that I had this interest, I think, was interesting for him. And the fact that I was involved in this world was interesting for him. And so, um, you know, and I would invite him to come to art openings and that sort of thing. So it was, you know, we both were, I mean, I think I got a lot more out of the relationship to be honest than he did, but it's not over. We're still, we're still friends. Um, but there was like a reciprocal kind of aspect to it. Mm-hmm. And I think if you can find that, then that's great. Right. Cause then, you know, you're not just asking. Yeah. Uh, and I think, uh, I think another thing I've picked out from you is, is just the idea of re- remembering to, uh, to push things a little bit further. I think like the perfect example of that is, um, is the, the party that we went to in New York on the top of <laughs> what building was that? Uh, it was the, uh, it's like a famous, uh, hotel, the standard hotel. The standard. And, yeah. And it was called the, the standard Bo- hotel. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to say, you want to tell that story? Sure. Uh, it's a fun, st- uh, uh, yeah, it's one of my favorite stories with you in New York. Um, so 
I, it was me. We had been somewhere else earlier, earlier that night, I think, with a friend of mine from LA, and you were visiting. Is that right so far? Yeah, I was visiting. Maybe we might have gone to an art opening or something like that. Like, yeah, some woman that was presenting a new book, but that's not really part of the story. So, yeah, yeah. And and then um, you know, it's a place that I don't normally go. The Boom Boom Room is kind of like a bit of like a she-she kind of scene place in the meatpacking district. But it's kind of a funny place, you know, on an ethnographic level to kind of take people that are visiting New York so they can see like, okay, this is part of New York. Um, so yeah, so like uh, just as a way of seeing um, this version of New York, I think it's interesting. So I thought it'd be fun to take you there. And I had been going often enough that um, even though it's a little bit of a tough door, I usually had a decent chance of getting in. Um, it's never a hundred percent. Uh, and then, uh, we went there, but discovered that there was a movie premiere or movie premiere after party opening type thing. Yeah, I think they, they just said like, Oh, private party. You can't go up there. And then you overheard somebody say, yeah, yeah, after Earth. yeah exactly. Yeah. So yeah, fill in where my memory is hazy, but basically, yeah. So they they did the pri- the private party thing, which is like the classic New York thing. But this actually was a real private party. It was for the Will Smith movie After Earth, and uh, and so yeah. I mean, I wanted to take you there. That was my plan, and so I felt like um, we shouldn't give up, and we didn't give up. I um, you know. I knew that like, you know, I've been to enough like movie after parties and stuff that there's a lot of people there that people don't know. And there's like, it's just like a big group and there's a lot of unknowns and the people at the door don't know who anyone is because it's a different party every night. So you just need a name. And yeah, at this uh, point I'm like, oh, forget it. Let's go home. Yeah. Not happening. (laughs) Yeah. You're, you're ready to pack it in. Um, and so then we Googled on IMDb and I remember trying to like look at the... You Googled on IMDb. Wait, maybe yeah. we all did. I don't know. Yeah, there was definitely... Anyway, there's Googling happening on IMDb and I was looking for someone uh, that was like fairly down on the production side. So not someone from the cast, too obvious, but someone from the crew, uh, but crew with enough stature to be on the list, but not enough stature to be like headlining the list. So... I think it was like a, a producer, but kind of like a mid-tier producer that we found. And they kind of looked like you. I mean, you'd probably disagree, but they had he dark had beard, hair. And he beard. was like 20 years older. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I just remember like being so happy to like find, I was like, this is it. This is our end. We've got it. Um, and his name is John Rusk. And we went to the door I felt like you weren't really bought in at this point still. No, no, definitely not. But I was, I, I, yeah, I was, I was definitely crapping my pants, but I was like, all right, well, worst case scenario, they say no or something like that. Exactly. So I was going to go up. Yeah, my, the plan was I was going to go up and I was going to say, I think we'd already gone up and, and like somebody else had told us, oh, no, there's a private party. And so we're going back up and there's a different security guard, fortunately. And I think you gave me your hat. And so I'm <laughs> like, yeah, um, you know, I, uh, I'm on the list. <laughs> I think if this is how it went in. He's like, what's your name? Oh like, yeah. John, John Rusk. And looks at the list for a second. Okay, go ahead. But didn't he so, screw you for a second? Cause I feel like there was like a moment when he's like, yeah, you're not on the list, but, um, 
I feel like I remember this kind of clearly. And then we were so ready to turn around because that was like, we gave it our shot. But then he like kind of started smiling. It's like, ah, just joking. Come on in, John. And uh, ah. yeah, it was, it was something like that. Because I, think- I, I do remember a moment where I was kind of like, um, you know, shaking my, like acting like, yeah, what's going on? How could I not be in the list? That's strange. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly what happened. Like, he, he might was have been kind testing of, us. Yeah, maybe. But I, I think also is because like, I think that you were like one of the higher names on the list. Because when we went inside, you had a placard with your name on a table. And so I think that like you were kind of like a highlighted person. So he was like pretending like, uh, you just spoiled the, you just spoiled the ending. People are going to know that we, <laughs> we got, <laughs> but yeah, uh, sorry. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I really kidding. On it. I'm kidding. You didn't spoil the ending. It's probably pretty obvious. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. So then, and, and I was there and so like, yeah, like as John Rusk, like you had no problem taking me and my friend in as well. Um, so we all got like ushered up and the next thing we know, wait, do you remember this part? Do you remember we were, we got past, we're going to the elevator and all of a sudden we hear like, Hey, stop. (laughs) No, I don't remember that. So we hear, Hey, stop. And we're like, oh, shit, we're just, I mean, that's what I, I thought. But no, they were chasing some other guy who had, like, snuck past or something like that. Someone who wasn't supposed to be there. Somebody who, was, somebody who wasn't supposed to be there. Yeah, those people always try and sneak in. Um, yeah, but yeah, I don't remember that. I just remember being so happy once we got the green light that it, was, that it actually worked. I mean, I didn't care so much about going to the party. I just liked the fact that would would crack the code, would figure it out. So, you know, it's like the, the satisfaction of solving a problem. And uh, and the next thing we knew, we were upstairs and we were like getting handed free champagne and listening to DJ Jazzy Jeff DJ or wh- who was it? Oh, it was Carlton was dancing uh, well, or when something. We, yeah, when we walked in, I wish I would have taken a video of this. As we walked in, Carlton from... Uh Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was doing like the most amazing Michael Jackson impression ever singing, dancing on stage. And that was amazing. Um, But yeah, I I think that that was, you know, kind of a learning experience for me, I guess. And I don't know. I I still kind of feel bad for, for, for uh, sneaking into the party, but, but just, uh, just when I think about, that kind of mindset of you have this mischievous fantasy and you either try to figure it out or you say, ah, nah, I'm not going to do that. And, and what exponentiated over a lifetime, how, how different two different people's lives could be based upon their attitude about taking their fantasies and making them real. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think that, it's something, yeah, it's, I guess it's true with anything, right? Like if you do something challenging and it works, it gives you confidence to do it again and you're willing to take more challenges and to kind of, you build up that muscle um, as opposed to kind of just, um, you know, holding back. And I think that it's often like there's not a big difference between uh, the actions you take to that will make something succeed or not succeed, but the outcome is very different. So all we did was find someone's name, right, on a list and say it. And in saying the name, it totally, like the outcomes were either never go, not go into the boom, boom room and have nothing happen or the opposite, go inside and like have this very strange experience. 
And those are two very different things. But the thing that facilitated it was a very small thing, which is like a little bit of research, finding someone's name and saying their name. But that required a little bit of discomfort, I think, on your part, because you're the one that had to say it. Um, but if you're, yeah, if you're willing to take Wait, would you back, have been uncomfortable if you were, if, if it was you, would you have been uncomfortable? Um, I get the feeling well, you might not have been. Well, I've, I've, uh, I mean, there's always a little bit of discomfort, right? Because you're telling a lie. Um, in a way, it's a harmless lie. No one gets hurt. But it's still, there's that feeling of like, I'm not telling the truth. And I think that mm-hmm. I used to, you know, there's a certain point where if you're like quite young, that's kind of exciting. Um, but I feel like a little bit, um, I don't get excited by lying anymore. But I still get excited by kind of like figuring out a, like a problem or a solution or kind of like, um, you know, it's like, you, like we sort of socially week. engineered it, you know, it's something I, I think I do a lot with trying to get guests for this podcast is you know, playing like a really long game and trying to figure out how to um, win somebody over into, into coming on the show and stuff like that as is, uh, I think it's one way that I do it is some people think, or you just email somebody out of the blue and you ask them, you know, you just email Seth Godin out of the blue and you ask him to be on the show. And I mean, while Seth Godin will not admit that <laughs> that there's anything other than random for for him deciding to be on the show, like I I, I think I did some some engineering there. Um, and it's something that I do with a lot of guests and it's something I've learned to do with, I like getting sponsors for the show is like out, identifying the person, yeah. I guess being somebody who's, you know, used to working with computers and you, you write some code and something and, and something does something. Well, people don't work that way. So you have to think a lot more about relationships and people. If you're going to engineer some sort of a breakthrough, whether it's getting into a party or getting a guest on your show or finding a job, things like that. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, I mean, I've, I've, yeah, I've, I've been following your podcast and like, I've been seeing the guests you're getting and, um, I think it's great, but I'm not totally surprised in a way. I think, you know, of course you can, you, you know, if you're, if you're doing a good job at something and you're interesting, um, there's a way to, to do it. I mean, I just think like whatever, you know, I mean, this sounds like a little bit glib, but you know, you can, you can get there from here if you just kind of, um, put in the work and, uh, also have like a bit of creativity, you know, I think that's, that's all it really requires. This has been an awesome conversation. I want to uh, wrap it up soon to uh, be respectful of your time and everything. Uh, but I always like to ask ask my guests, like, what's the last book that you read that changed the way you saw something? Actually, being a grad student, who knows? Because you're probably reading textbooks. Last book that changed the way I saw something. Um, I feel like I've been reading books a bit differently these days too, where I'll get like a specific thing from a book, but it's not the book itself that's changing my mindset. I think that the book that I'm reading right now though is quite good actually. Um, It's called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And it's by this uh, biologist, Robert Sapolsky, who's, I think he's at Berkeley. Um, And he, uh, he just does a really nice job of connecting things. And so this book is kind of um, about stress in many ways, but he's connecting stress to, you know, physiology and to neuroscience and to all the different mechanisms of the body. 
and how this one response, which is so important um, to life and to survival, has all of these other effects, all these downstream effects and how it's kind of been twisted based on like the current. Um, and this is like a topic that I'm just really interested in. It's like how our current like um, biology doesn't really match up with our social technological construct that we live in. Um, so he's kind of touching on that as well. So yeah, I'd say that's the book. I'm only about halfway or two thirds of the way through, but um, it's been really good. And I, I just like his approach where he's kind of integrating a lot of different levels of thought. And do you have a final message for our listeners that you think would sum up kind of the, the gist of our conversation today? Um, I think that the one point that seems to have repeated itself is just that um, it's good to, and this isn't like a groundbreaking um, revelation, but it's just good to, develop the skills and the confidence um, to look at something that you are not able to do or don't understand, but to look at it with the confidence that if I really um, decide that I want to do it or understand it, it's achievable. And, um, and so, so there's, there, it's never, uh, you should never decide not to do something because it seems like it's too late or it's too hard. Um, you should only make that decision if it seems like you're doing it for the wrong reasons or it's not interesting enough. And I think you're probably going to have a couple new fans after being on the podcast. So uh, where can people get more of you? Um, well, there is my website, which is uh, going undergoing a redesign, um, which you can't, which will launch probably in September because I'm doing kind of a science side of my website. Now I had an art website. It's Daniel dot, uh, Daniel J Wilson.com. Um, so that's the best way to, uh, see my work. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter, although I'm very inactive at underscore Daniel J Wilson underscore. Um, yeah, so those are the two best ways, I guess. Cool. And download Minutia. Yeah, download Minutia. I mean, I think that there's a bit of sticker shock for a lot of people because it is $14.99, but that's, um, that's with that price, you're paying for the app and you're paying for us not to sell your data and you're paying for us not to advertise to you. And you're just basically covering the bandwidth and the uh, storage costs and also Apple's fee. So. Get minutia. It's very cool. Um, thanks so much for taking the time today. This has been a, a fun chat. No, thank you, Dave. Appreciate it. that conversation with Daniel Wilson helps you follow your curiosity and break into new fields. For more on making fantasies a reality, listen to Peter Bragiel on episode 63. Peter shares how he plans huge trips like riding the whole Trans-Siberian Railway or canoeing the entire Mississippi. And then you gather all your resources and you just like you go step by step by step. Like you don't worry so much about putting the boat in at Lake Itasca and then setting off. Like you worry about that months from now. 
but worry about just getting all the resources together. So you got your canoe. Okay. They're, they're manufacturing it in Canada. We need a canoe paddle. And then you do your research. Again, Peter is on episode 63. And is a technology product like Minutia art? Ryan Hoover says so on episode 67. Ryan, by the way, founded Product Hunt and sold it for $20 million three years later. Not every technology product is a company. And I see technology increasingly more like like uh, a lot of other art forms, like music or you know art and painting, whatever. Uh, you know, when kids today build a mobile app or Chrome extension or a website, it's it's in many ways a creative expression. It's them tinkering and playing and learning and then sharing it with the world. The same as someone who's, you know, learning to play the guitars or drum or whatnot. And yet we don't really criticize the kid playing the, the drums or learning to play the guitar. Like his song might be awful, but we don't really criticize him because we're like, hey, he's he's learning. Again, Ryan is on episode 67. I work hard to help you crack the code on fulfilling work. If Love Your Work is helping you, there are some ways you can help support the show and make it even better. One is to subscribe, 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 subscribe. This is especially effective on Apple Podcasts or iTunes because it boosts rankings and helps others find the show. I know many of you listen on Overcast because you're the early adopter types. So even if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please subscribe there anyway. Subscribe in your iPhone, your iPad, your Apple TV, your computer. The more devices, the better. It really helps. Apple Podcast ratings help too. Just go to cadavy.net slash Apple, click on write a review, and click on the star rating. You don't even have to write a review. It just takes a couple seconds. You can also join Love Your Work Elite. You'll get access to episodes before everyone else. You could even get ad-free interviews weeks in advance, and you can get your name or business mentioned in the credits of the show. For details, go to lywelite.com. That's lywelite.com. Love Your Work is brought to you in part by top Love Your Work elite members such as Arif Akhtar. This has been Love Your Work, and I'm David Cadavy. The theme music for the show is More Streets, performed by Spider Flower. Love Your Work is a production of Cadavy, Inc.